this is Akpod. I'm Erin Ransford, and I'm here with our host, Dr. Ismail Nabil. Dr. Nabil is an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at the Icon School of Medicine. He is a fellow of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, serves on the ACOM Board of Directors, and chairs ACOM's Council on OEM Science. Our guest today is Dr. Gary Toops. Dr. Toops has practiced undersea and hyperbaric medicine since 2004, when he treated recreational divers and military aviators for decompression illness at Kadena Air Base in Okinawa, Japan. He is a former U.S. Air Force officer and served as a navigator, pilot, flight safety officer, and aircraft mishap investigator. In 1995, he left aviation and attended the Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center, earning his MD in 1999. He completed the U.S. Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine Fellowship in Undersea and Hyperbaric Medicine in 2008 and became board certified later that year. Dr. Toops served as the flight commander for the Hyperbaric Medicine Clinic at Travis Air Force Base from 2009 to 2010. He was the Air Force Regional Consultant for Hyperbarics at Kadena Air Base from 2010 to 2014. After completing a fellowship in aerospace medicine at Mayo Clinic in 2017, he was designated as the medical director for the hyperbaric and altitude medicine section at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where he now serves. Today is July 6, 2023. On today's episode, Dr. Toops provides an overview of hyperbaric medicine, offers insight into the recent implosion of the Titan submersible, and discusses decompression illness in divers and caisson workers. Hi, Dr. Nabil, and welcome, Dr. Toops. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Um, I am delighted for Gary to join us. Thank you both for inviting me. Should be a lot of fun this afternoon. It's a topic that's all the rage. Right. So we are talking about the exploration of Titanic, the ship that sank almost 100 years ago. But there's something that hit the news just recently, the Ocean Gate Titan accident that captured imagination. And it's a tragedy that is hard to forget. The submersible that went down on June 18, 2023, and all the souls on board were lost. I believe that wreckage has been recovered. There's more to know about this catastrophic implosion event that occurred. But I'm delighted that we can look at the event and see what exactly happened. And I think you have an expertise in that, Gary. My expertise is in undersea and hyperbaric medicine, and additionally in aerospace medicine, which is somewhat related. And yes, the Titan did go missing on June 18th, initially missing with five people on board. It was a deep sea tourism operation, and at least three of the people on board were tourists who had chartered basically the Titan to go to the Titanic, to show it to them up close and in person. The Titanic sits at the monstrous depth of 3,800 meters or 12,500 feet, which is at an almost unimaginable pressure, almost 400 times the pressure we experience at sea level here at the surface. And yes, some of the wreckage has been recovered. That wreckage is consistent with a sudden implosion type event that was unfortunately fatal to the crew and the tourists, the customers. Those are the facts. That's what we know. We talked a little earlier about how things kind of run out of control, the internet being what it is today. And so there's a lot of speculation abounding, but those are the things that we know. And the investigation by some very competent professionals with the Coast Guard and the NTSB are ongoing. Right. So a couple of things comes to mind, like how much deeper is 
Titanic, like how far and long that depth is. Is the human able to swim down to that depth or is it possible? Well, it would be a one-way trip, unfortunately. And no, humans can't swim down that far. The deepest depth that humans have attained, even in the experimental setting, is something over 2,000 feet. And that was in a dry chamber. There was very similar experiments, one done at Duke University and one done in France. Practically, no one has ever dived that far. They have had human divers down to maybe 16 or 1,700 feet. That was a one-time thing done by, I believe, by the French back in, I think, in the 80s. For practical limits, human divers working in the oil field, they're actually kept under pressure. They're called uh, saturation divers. The practical limit for that is going to be probably no more than 11 or 1,200 feet, and usually they're somewhat less than that. These people are stored in that saturation setting for up to a month, and then it takes days for them to decompress from that. So my understanding is the we need a submersible or submarine to go to that depth to sustain that pressure. And the way I saw it, at that depth, there's no light. You can't see anything, and you have to provide that light to actually see the depth of the ocean. So one of the challenges I had is, I know that the submersible went down that far, but the Coast Guards and others struggled to find vessels go down that deep to search for the vessel. What's the story behind that? There's really not that much call for humans to go down to that depth. Now, you do see some explorers. James Cameron is one very famous one who actually went to the deepest place on Earth, the Challenger Deep. The only reasons to go down there are for some exploration, maybe some research. There's not a whole lot down there to see anyway. It is very expensive and it is a very high risk endeavor. I mean, you have to remember that military submarines don't get anywhere near that depth and they can get fairly deep, maybe a couple thousand feet. There's just not a whole lot of call for humans to go down there. A lot of that depth of exploration can be done quite well with ROVs or remotely operated vehicles. That's in fact how the Titanic was found by Dr. Ballard back in, I think, the 1980s, 1990s. I 1985, can't I think, was the... 1985 was when it was uh, rediscovered. And uh, he found that with an ROV. And yes, later they sent some submersibles down there. But anytime you get down that deep, it is a very, very risky operation. The sea does not suffer fools. It is, especially in that high-pressure environment, very, very, very unforgiving. The interesting part here is the depth where the Titanic was found, 12,500. But I believe that there are parts of the ocean that are deeper, much deeper than yes. that. And then we have human exploration to those deeper parts of the ocean as well. Yes. In the Pacific, off the coast of Guam, you have the Marianas Trench, which goes down to as deep as 35,000 feet, over 10,000 meters. And humans have been to that depth. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, the first one to make it down there was a vehicle called the Trieste. I don't remember the year. I think it was in the 1960s. Uh, all the way up to, and uh, more, more recently, uh, James Cameron, the filmmaker, actually helped design and make a, a vessel that actually, he actually went down there. There are probably more people who've been to the moon, or at least around the moon, that have been to that depth. It's just completely inhospitable. And even if you do everything correctly, there's a fair chance you won't make it back. Yeah, and the James Cameron expedition took a couple of years of planning 
to go down there in that depth. And one of the exciting things that I can recall and remember from that episode that they were able to find new species of sea animals down there, which is truly incredible. Some part of this ocean that we have not even explored. Yeah, that is incredible that you can find something that will be able to live down there at that pressure with no light. It's very cold. You know, you'd think that it would be completely devoid of life, but I guess you can say that there's no place on Earth that doesn't have some life anyway. What kind of vehicle would survive going down 35,000 feet? Well, if you look at most of these, they kind of have some things in common. Most of them are going to be spherical. A sphere tends to be able to support weight from all directions very efficiently when you're talking about pressure from the outside. The next would be cylinders, which the Titan was, but a cylinder is not quite as efficient. Almost all of these that go down to that depth are going to be either titanium or steel. The reason for that is steel and titanium are both metals that have very predictable qualities as far as their strength. They're homogenous. They behave in a very predictable manner. There are some questions as to whether the Titan was maybe up to the job. It was a composite vessel. It was carbon fiber in the middle, titanium on the ends, and they weren't really wrapped together in a homogenous manner. We use carbon fiber to make tanks for firemen that can hold very high pressure from the inside. But they have a steel liner and they're wrapped so that it's one single structure. The uh, Titan was not joined together as a single structure. It was basically two titanium ends kind of glued into this carbon fiber middle. It was not classified or certified by any agency for human occupancy. It was a straight experimental vehicle, which is a bit curious because from what I've heard, every other operator who does go to the Titanic to bring tourists down there or researchers down there does use a classified certified vehicle that's meant to take that pressure. Was this the maiden voyage of the Titan? I thought Ocean Gate has been around for a while. Ocean Gate has been around for a while, and they've made similar submersibles that didn't go quite this deep. But the Titan has only been down there less than 10 times. I heard that this was the seventh trip to the Titanic. Oh, so they did have some success before. Yes, they did. And, and that's the challenge in terms of repeated encounters with very high pressure can potentially cause fractures which might not be seen early on uh, in the body of, of a submersible. I think that's the challenge that we uh, see in the air with planes as well as the submersible that goes deep into the ocean. And I think that needs to be accounted for and addressed. The interesting thing about the Titan experience is the, the individuals that went down do they require some form of training? This is what I've heard, is that they actually did give them some limited training so that they could actually function as very limited crew members. I'm not entirely sure as to what that training was, but it sounds like there wasn't any kind of a selection process. I think it cost like a quarter million dollars to get a seat on the Titan. I don't know that they did any kind of screening, medical or otherwise, as to whether a person might be able to make that journey. I mean, if we were putting someone into space, or when I see a pilot for his FAA exam, there are certain things that I have to look at. As an FAA uh, medical examiner, I'm an occupational physician for pilots. I also see divers for their certification exams. There are certain things that they have to be able to do and certain things in their medical history that might exclude them from being able to do the job. But this is tourism. This is a money-making operation. It's different than when you're trying to clear someone to specifically do that job. 
really excited to hear that there's a specialty just focused on diving as well as workers who go down in depths to work and do some construction work. How does that work? What is hyperbaric medicine? It's twofold. The clinic that I run here at Mayo is the hyperbaric and altitude medicine clinic. And so we have a very large clinical therapeutic footprint and we see people for any number of maladies. We don't see a lot of diving cases here in Rochester, Minnesota. However, we do see some of the other emergency applications for hyperbaric medicine are carbon monoxide poisoning. We see a fair amount of that. Gas embolism, which can happen not just from diving, it's, it's something that can happen from pulmonary barotrauma in divers that ascend too quickly. But we also see it in procedural accidents, you know, when gas winds up in a vascular space that it's not supposed to be in, winds up in the brain, that kind of thing. So we treat them very similar to how we would treat a diver with a similar malady. We treat people who have crush injuries, frostbite, surgical flaps that are compromised or dusky. Those are some of the urgent or emergent things that we see. Things that are more chronic, people with late effects of radiation from cancer therapy. It takes a while, several weeks of treatment, but we can bring about some improvement in people who are having bowel or bladder dysfunction, people who have bone issues from radiation therapy. Osteoradionecrosis of the mandible is one that we see fairly often. So they'll often get hyperbaric oxygen therapy before going to a surgical procedure. And then there are the people with the chronic diabetic wounds that some, not all of them, may respond to hyperbaric oxygen therapy as far as getting extra oxygen to that area and triggering the healing process is the way we like to think about it. Historically, if we go back, like the dive medicine or diving has really helped in progressing medicine, particularly in wound care and all. But heading back into 1800s when there were bridges or other construction that was done around, let's say, big cities, New York City or other cities, there were divers involved, right, to go in and do the work and build a foundation for what we see right now. Right. So the Ease Bridge, the Brooklyn Bridge, all of these back in the 1800s, they required the use of a device called a caisson, which is the French for box. That's all it is. And it is a basically a metal or metal and wooden box that was placed on the river bottom and you had people in there. It was pressurized to keep the water out and people would go down there and manually muck the stuff out the bottom and send it up on a conveyor and they would stay down in there for hours and this thing would keep going deeper and deeper until they reached bedrock. And so as they went deeper and deeper, that required more and more pressure to keep the water out. And lo and behold, at some point, people started coming out and they had various manifestations of illness from just some joint pain all the way to very profound neurological uh, embarrassment and quadriplegia, that kind of thing. It took a while. It was a mystery illness. They called it different things. They called it caisson disease because they worked in caissons. The ones who came out and were having a lot of pain, they kind of had a classic posture where they were kind of bent forward at the waist and up the back. And that was the classic Grecian bend posture. And that's where the title, the bends came from. So yes, even though they were not necessarily wet divers, they were working in a dry environment. They were pressurized. They were breathing compressed air. All this time, nitrogen is building up. The oxygen in the air is metabolized. 
the nitrogen is is biologically inert, so it builds up. And when you come out of the pressurized environment, it wants to come out. And if you don't give it enough time to safely decompress and off-gas, then it will come out of solution, form bubbles, and wind up in places that you don't want it, which can cause, like I said, joint pain, spinal or central nervous system, neurological disorders. There's a whole array of things, certainly, that it can cause. The bubbles can wind up in the coronary system and cause coronary symptoms. And again, it was quite the mystery, and it took a long time to figure out how to treat it because the treatment was basically to go back under pressure, which we discussed previously. People said, well, that's homeopathic. We're putting them back under the same conditions, expecting to treat it. Well, what they weren't getting was bringing them out at a slower rate or bringing them out and having them breathe oxygen to help that nitrogen off gas quicker. Fascinating science indeed, no question about it. The question I have is they're free diving that goes all the way to the depths and they try to break records. How do these divers then come up and avoid the bends? They are down for such a short amount of time. It is possible for free divers to get the bends. The ones you're talking about, the free divers, basically do it on one breath and they've gone to some incredible depths. And there are different ways of doing that sport. The riskiest, the most dangerous one is the unlimited, where the diver hyperventilates, does everything they can to maximize the amount of oxygen they have. They normally don't take oxygen before. They are on a weighted sled that just rockets them down to a certain depth. And when they get to that depth, they have to activate a compressed air cylinder attached to an airbag. It inflates and it rockets them back up. And it is very, very dangerous. Now, they should not get a gas embolism from coming up too fast because they only have the air that they started off with. So they're not breathing compressed air. And they're down for only such a short amount of time. They don't really don't have time for the nitrogen to build up. So that's why they typically don't get the bins for that one dive. Now, there is a class of diver that makes repeated fairly deep free dives. And those are the food and pearl divers, typically from the Pacific, but there are other bodies of water. There are the ama the female Japanese divers that they dive for food. There are other islands in the Pacific where people dive for pearls and other things. And these people can make dives down to 100 feet or more with a very minimal surface interval and do that repeatedly through the day. It is possible for them to get decompression sickness. There's even a name for it. It's called Taravana. I forget which language it's from but it means to fall crazily because these people would come down with a neurological DCS and have ataxia. When I tell people that, they're surprised and they go, wow, I didn't know that. I said, but you or I would never get this because you have to be a basically a conditioned athlete to be able to dive that much, that long, and that many times during the day. So very few people, except for these food and pearl divers, would, would be susceptible to it. Are any of the conditions involved with decompression sickness reversible with treatment? Yes. I got to tell you, like the U.S. Navy, they have divers and they have recompression chambers sitting on the deck of the ship. If a diver comes out of the water and they have the least symptom, they're going right into the chamber. So the U.S. Navy has a very high success rate for treatment because they're treated almost right away. With recreational divers, and I've treated a lot of those, I lived in Okinawa, Japan for seven years, and, and I treated a lot of recreational dive injuries. The recreational divers typically will go anywhere from an hour to several hours to sometimes a couple of days before they can get treatment. In fact, the one case that I had here at Mayo back in 2020, this lady was out of the water for a week, and yet we were still able to get her to resolve. That's an outlier. I mean, we were able to treat her 
She had no symptoms left, even though she had a pretty bad case of decompression sickness. But the longer it goes without treatment, the more likely you're going to have pretty serious residual symptoms. We talked about historical workers diving underwater and staying there for a long period of time, and we learned a lot from their experiences. Currently, there are jobs that require us to dive to that depth to perform some job functions that you think was relevant for deep, deep dives. Basically, if we're talking commercial diving or military diving and people who make a living in the sea, the heyday of all this was the 1960s, 1970s, when uh, Jacques Cousteau and the U.S. Navy were doing their underwater habitats. Just a, it's just a wonderful bit of history, and I would definitely recommend reading about it. But currently, if you're talking about human divers who are going to depth and bringing a gas supply with them, there are basically two categories. And again, this is different from submarines and submersibles, where the people inside are protected and it's maintained at one atmosphere. A human diver in the water is subject to the pressure at the ambient depth that they're working. So there are two types. There's what we call bounce divers. Bounce divers start from the surface and they end at the surface. They go down to a depth. They do their work and then they have to come out. There are procedures to get them out safely. They will probably have to do some kind of a decompression procedure in the water, stopping at various depths, breathing for a certain amount of time to allow that gas to come out. There are two types of bounce divers. There's the self-contained or scuba divers, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, where they carry their gas supply with them on their back or sometimes off to the side, and they're basically free swimming in the water. You can also have surface-applied bounce diver where they're, they're actually connected by an umbilical and an airline to the surface. And the other type of diver, which is very, very interesting, are the saturation divers. So the reason that saturation diving comes about, it turns out that you're much more productive if you can stay down at pressure and work there. And they'll maintain those men and women down in that environment for a month. So they will pressurize them in a deck compression chamber, or habitat it's called. They will maintain them at the pressure that they're going to be working at under the water. They hook up a transfer vessel, or a diving bell if you will. They make the transfer into the bell under pressure. They put them in the water, put them down at their working depth. They go out of the bell. They do their work, which can be any number of hours in the ocean. They often have hot water suits to keep them warm. It's quite the operation. And then when they're done, they go back into the bell. They bring them out of the water. They meet back to the habitat on the deck, which is maintained at that pressure. They stay there for a month. That way they don't have to repeatedly undergo decompression. They do all of their decompression at the end of the month. And it can take days, you know, say they have a welding job at six or 700 feet. That's where they're going to compress them to. And they're going to stay at that same pressure, the equivalent pressure under the water for up to a month. They're very dedicated people. They are paid well, but it's, uh, you have to remember, it, you're, you're cooped up. These are not luxury apartments. <laughs> they, they are very small. And you may have several, as one, as one diver told me, he says, yeah, I'm a captive for a month with a bunch of, as he called them, grumpy divers. I don't know. I've never been in that environment. It's quite an interesting job, and the people who do it are very special. I'm fascinated by the fact that as we plan our trips to Mars in the near future, I think the deep ocean work, living in that kind of setting, gives us a pause of how hostile the environments are in the space and in the deep sea. 
it's definitely a challenging and very, very uh, interesting environment, particularly uh, takes a toll on human body and has uh, significant impacts. How do you clear a diver to go to that depth? Well, to that depth, uh, it's very much like a DOT or an FAA physical. There are really only one or two agencies, and they're actually commercial diving agencies. They're not really government agencies who kind of make the standards. It does take some training. About every three years, I go to a course that refamiliarizes me with the standards for these divers. And you have to remember that certain things that are fine on the surface are not fine underwater. You know, certain drugs don't work well under pressure. They may have some quirk of metabolism or they just don't work well under pressure or they may have the adverse effects under pressure. There may be some neurological side effect that maybe is fine at the surface, but that down at pressure may not be acceptable. So those are the kinds of things you have to watch out for. Obviously, people have to be, you know, cardiovascularly sound because the work can be very, very, very difficult, strenuous. Mental health, obviously, is very important. You wouldn't want to have someone cooped up in a small habitat who's uh, prone to panic attacks, you know, and is maybe on medication to control that. But then that in a different environment, some degree of that might be acceptable. So it's, it's very much like doing any other occupational exam, like a DOT exam. There are standards you have to just watch out for. And there's also your spider senses as a physician. Sometimes, you know, you have to get a good history, just like anyone else. Sometimes people like to omit things. So I have to ask, of course, everybody dreams to go to Caribbean and do some scuba diving. I have it on my mind. I think Aaron will agree with me. One of the best experiences you can have watching the coral reef. Do you have any advice for those infrequent divers? Yeah, I'm a very avid scuba diver, actually. And uh, the main thing is think about not just yourself, but your buddy, you know, because if you have something that could be debilitating, you could put that person in danger as well. Be honest. If you have a medical condition, talk to your physician, whether that person is a diving medicine physician or not. They'll often come to me, uh, you know, if they have a question. But be honest, because there are certain medical conditions that really are quite dangerous when you put someone in the water. Someone, say, with unstable congestive heart failure, you put them in the water and now you've redistributed the fluid and you could put someone into failure if they're very close to failure. That's uh, one thing that comes to mind. If someone has a seizure disorder, the rule is to even be considered, you got to be five years off medications. Putting someone with epilepsy in the water when they're at a fair risk of seizure, a generalized tonic-clonic seizure underwater is almost universally fatal. The first thing that happens is they spit out their regulator. And a lot of people don't want to disclose these things because they love diving, uh, but you have to be honest. You think about yourself, your buddy, your family, and, and all those kinds of things. So if you have any questions, I would say visit your local physician. If your local physician doesn't know, call Dr. Toops or some other dive medicine physician and get their take on it. Well, that's been an exciting and really illuminating conversation. I've learned a lot. I don't do dive medicine that much, but love to hear about the specialists, particularly in our specialty, who have done really exciting work in this field. And I think there are more people interested in hyperbaric medicine and deep sea medicine and will really break more grounds or barriers and more research is needed in this field. But thank you for being part of this conversation. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun. And hopefully at some point, you'll ask me on again. Thank you, Dr. Toops. Thank you, Dr. Nabil. 